All right, if, uh, if you're or new here, we have, we have a sacred assembly booklet back there that goes through our series. We're trying to provide those for all of our series. Hopefully there's a couple left. If not, then we can certainly get one for you. And it has a place for sermon notes, a little more explanation of what we're going through and why, uh, and then questions if you're part of our, uh, our road groups, which is our version of community groups, to uh, um, kind of ponder some scenarios in there. We have one for our previous series in James. It's in the back, so if you would like to have that for personal study or, or whatever, then feel free to grab one of those in the back as well. And then Bibles, obviously. We're going to go through a lot of Scripture today. I'm, I've been looking forward to this sermon because it's basically about preaching, and I get to preach. I have the privilege of doing something that I would do for free um, and used to do uh, many times before I was a pastor in small groups and uh, with family and one-on-one and all kinds of things, so I'm excited to talk about this. And it seems like a strange topic maybe, but it's extremely important. This is the second of a five-week series that I said was called Sacred Assembly, and it's basically a series about the church. And it's about what the church is and what makes a good one. Now, instead of, uh, which is our temptation, to define the church or evaluate the church or figure out what the church is according to our dreams or according to um, our experiences, both good and bad, because many of us have had good and bad experiences with church or church people, uh, we're trying to look into Scripture and specifically to Jesus and what Jesus, the builder of this thing and the foundation of this thing and the leader and the head of this thing called the church is and what he says. And so it, it's not to say that the church doesn't come in lots of different shapes and sizes. There are a lot of churches and there are churches that meet in homes. There are churches that gather like us. There are all kinds of shapes and sizes of different churches. But as we see all those, regardless of the, the shape and the size, the question we're trying to ask is, what are the essential marks of a good church? And when you even ask that question, uh, what makes a good church, we have a very superficial um, reception of that question. And we say good, we're like, well, I can tell you all the kind of things that are good or bad in a church from all my various experiences and the different churches I've been to. And we, uh, we really live in, in pretty much a surface-level culture. It's gotten much more surface-level, I think, um, and very illiterate in many ways, culturally illiterate, over the years. And we don't go in-depth on much of anything anymore. And technology has played a role in that, certainly. But when I ask what makes a good church, we stay pretty much on the surface. Um, and instead of going into what, again, last week I said the Bible said the church is, which is the house of the living God, the family of the living God, a place to serve Him through worship. And we worship, yes, through preaching and opening God's Word. We worship through singing. We worship through giving. A place to serve God in worship. A place to serve one another, our brothers and our sisters in fellowship. And a place to serve the world that needs to hear the truth and needs salvation. Instead of looking at it that way, we kind of just basically see what or how it serves us. And that's when we figure out if it's a good church or not, because it feeds me or doesn't feed me or makes me feel good or not. And that's different for everyone. But it's the same, I think, mentality that most people take 
with our, our kind of rate of church meter that we go into churches with. And I know you all have had one before, if you don't have one now, because I used to have one, and it was very strict. It's like a, like a tip meter where you're uh, you know, waiting for your tip. I used to you know, slurp the Pepsi, and when it was, timer's on, and you would just see how long it took to get it refilled, and the tip was going down as, you know, it's just ridiculous. But we do the same things with churches. And we come in, and we kind of like, all right, let's rate everything that we could rate at a church. And quite frankly, a church is like a, um, a, a cauldron of criticism. I mean, there's so many things that you can criticize at a church, uh, just a list, and so I started listing some of them because um, we come in, we see what, what a church does and how they do it, and because we're not engaged in it typically, we can go, well, I like that, I don't like that, that's bad, that's good, whatever. You kids ministry, right? It's safe, it's not safe, it's good, it's bad, it's productive, it's unfruitful, whatever. That's a huge cauldron of criticism. You can hate it very easily and love it sometimes. Um, you have men's ministries, do you have one or not? Women's ministries, what are you doing for it? Do you have recovery ministries? What the, does that look like? Um, do you have stuff for couples? Yes, no, maybe so. Do you have Bible studies? And what are you studying? The building itself, we come in, I like it, I don't like it. It's in a strip mall, kind of freaky, or it's in a strip mall, hey, that's better than a crystal cathedral on a hill. But you have an opinion about what the building is. The community groups, the coffee, that's huge, right? You walk in, do they even serve coffee? And what does the coffee taste like? Is it brown water or is it manly hearty syrup, or what is it exactly? And I think we got pretty good coffee, but that's important, it seems, especially in Northwest culture. Colors, why they have such freaky colors, or I like the colors. Why is the carpet red? We didn't choose it. Um, the uh, chairs, right? Chairs, these are comfy, these are not. My bottom's hurting, it's not hurting. I've fallen asleep, whatever. Uh, music, that's gigantic. That's like just polarizing, right? Music was terrible. Songs, I don't know them. I can sing with them. Why are the world's words screwed up on the screen? She's hitting notes I can't hit. What is going on here? Everything, right? It's like, I don't like that. I don't like the music. Or I do like the music. You hear that very often. Um, the uh, bulletin. It's strange. People have a bulletin. Do you have a bulletin? I don't like the small type. Why are there so many pictures in it? The announcements are funny, they're not funny, the programs, the offerings, who's sitting next to you, who's not sitting next to you, do they smell, do they not smell, whatever, do we have a meet and greet, right, you guys remember the meet and greet, okay, now it's time, stand and greet the person next to you, and everyone's like, I hate this, there's a couple of people that like it, me, I hate it, it's like, hi, I would never talk to you normally, but I'm being forced to right now, so you would say hi, then you would do the meet and greet, the lighting, is it too dark, too light, I can't read my Bible, I don't want people to see me, can I, where's the nearest exit? How many exits are there? Those types of things. Um, what does it feel like? What is it? Uh, is it warm? Is it cold? What does the guy say? What doesn't he say? Do we cry? Do we laugh? Do we, are we flippant about things? Do we pass the plate? That's huge because some churches pass the plate. Others don't. Do they pass the little velvet, you know, little thing with the wood sticks? And you're like, one like, you know, it's like a weapon or something. And you have the gold plates that leave your fingerprints on it. Remember those? You got the little cups. You got all kinds of different things. What? They make us go up here? That's kind of weird. Everyone's watching me. You know? You are calculating the entire time whether you're greeted, mobbed, ignored. What do you like? It's a good church. It's good. They're friendly. It's, it's bad. They're jerks. Whatever. And so, all that aside, all that stuff aside, because when I ask you the question, what is a good church? All that, those, per, those personal preference stuff. Aside, 
All the stuff that honestly is not required biblically. We're not required to have a men's ministry or a women's ministry, men's retreats, women's retreats, Awana. That's, none of that is required to have. But when we go down to the, the baseline, what must a church do in order to actually be a church? What does it have to have? What must it have? So we talk about preaching. Because I think there's a good question that people should ask. Why do we preach? All churches are the same, which they're not. All I come in and the guy preaches. Some for 20 minutes, some for 45 minutes, some for whatever. Why do we preach? Why do you have a guy proclaiming God's word on a Sunday? You should ask those things. Otherwise you get in the routines and you don't know. Acts chapter 2 is where I'm going to start in verse 42. It is the beginning of the church. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. And then Acts, right after Jesus ascends, he says, Wait in Jerusalem for the, for the Holy Spirit to come. I will send you. He will teach you all things. He will comfort you. He will empower you. And in Acts 2.42, what happens is, as soon as the church, Jesus ascends, they wait in Jerusalem, hiding out, a little scared together. Uh, they vote a new guy in to take the place of Judas. And then... The Holy Spirit comes down, fills them, they are empowered, and Peter, the guy that 43 days earlier had denied Jesus, stands up and preaches his first sermon as a fisherman. And it's amazing. He's like, pretty much, you killed Jesus, repent, and thousands of people come to know Jesus in that moment. And as soon as that happens, or shortly after that happens, Acts 2, this is the first thing they do. And it kind of gives us the earliest identifying marks of what the Christian church did or is. And it says in 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So we can kind of see what they did. The basics. And we've had a lot of argument throughout church history of what exactly it is. And as the Catholic Church kind of, kind of rose to, to power, if you will, over, over hundreds of years, eventually what you had was several reformers going... I see this visible church. I'm just not sure that what I see is what God actually invisibly sees. That just because it says I'm the church doesn't mean it is. And so the Protestant Reformation launched what we kind of know as Protestantism today. And they all kinds of little churches, as they separated from uh, Catholicism, and Martin Luther, one of the leading ones, had no intention of separating from the church completely. But what happened is all these little churches started popping up. And that happened for a long time, and they had to start going, God, what are the rules? What does a church have to be in order to be a church? And one of the reformers, Calvin, John Calvin, identified several marks of the church. And he said this, he wrote them in his, this thing called the Institutes. And here's what he wrote. He said, and this is about the 16th, close of the 16th century. He says, wherever we see the word of God purely preached, because you see it preached lots of places, purely preached and heard, and the sacraments, and the sacraments would be communion and baptism. Where you see, purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, or how Christ began it, there is not to be, not to be doubted, a church of God exists. And if it has the ministry of the word and honors it, if it has the administration of the sacraments, it deserves without doubt to be held and considered a church. Well, what about Awana? What about men's and women's ministries? What about small groups? What about special music? What about, you know, all the creative skits that you see and the graphics on the screen? 
guitars and drums. What about all that stuff? And quite frankly, all that stuff is good, except maybe the special music stuff. That's kind of spooky sometimes. Remember that, right? Someone will come up with a harmonica or something and be like, this is for the glory of Jesus. And they would say a special time for music that was more worshipful than others. I always thought it was kind of freaky. But all those other things, though, are good, but the point is they don't mark necessarily a good church biblically just because they're there. In other words, you could have a church that has fantastic music, fantastic kids' ministry, and still be unbiblical. Wow. Seriously? I mean, you could have a church of like 3,000 people that may be off the mark. Yep, could be. And one that's 10 people. Now, according to Scripture and the early church fathers and the reformers in history, the first mark of the church is the pure, open, unapologetic, uncompromising preaching of God's Word. The same Word that was preached by Jesus, and the same Word that was preached by His apostles thousands of years ago. But today, and I know that I probably spend more time looking at this than y'all do. Where did y'all come from? I don't know. I'm not even Southern or anything. I'm Northwest born. Whoa, that was kind of weird. That's okay, it works. We'll go with it, all right? But today there's a movement where there's a lot of new churches. People, like I said last week, are starting to leave the church a little bit. There's a movement, in, and even in, in Christianity, to do away with the sermon, the, just the sermon, preaching, in place of, or it's replaced by, conversation, spiritual conversations or dialogues about God. And... In, in the views of some, these same some, a lot of people believe that listening to sermons is, is like sitting for root canal work. It's just painful. They can't understand it. And I think large part that's because of our culture, what our culture is like. But not only are, do they think they're boring and maybe irrelevant and uninspiring and outmoded and all those things, pastors who preach them are like the poster children for what's wrong with the church standing up high and mighty and proclaiming and that's such a problem. Where's our, you know, everyone's equal type of mentality? And that doesn't look like it. And many actually believe that, that sermons aren't condoned or, or approved or affirmed by Scripture and they think it's pagan. Like the pagans were doing that. Now the early Christians, they were just trying to copy what the pagans were doing and so we shouldn't be preaching because you shouldn't do that. It's pagan. And so a lot of these new communities that are rising up, they'll have singing, they'll even read a Bible verse or two, they will have conversations about God, and they'll even have mutual encouragement and some level of accountability at times, but no sermon. No one's preaching here. No sermon. And I can completely understand that decision in a very humanly, fleshly way, because, quite frankly, there's a lot of pressure to preach a sermon. It may look like I'm up here just like, hey, all right. But there's a lot of pressure because I get to watch your guys' faces with approval or disapproval, heads shaking, eyes going down, sleeping, whatever it happens to be. Because we all walk in, and I'm the same way, expecting something. We evaluate our church experience oftentimes by, well, what was the sermon like? How did the preacher do? He did good, bad, whatever. What did he say? What didn't he say? Is this guy, as you come to a new church, is this guy someone I can trust? 
What's he dressed like? That's the first hint. What does he talk like? Does he say y'all? Because maybe he's, maybe he's uneducated, right? What's this guy like? And I, 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 need, a, I need a guy that, you know, is, is a plain Jane type of guy. He's got to be holy, though. I mean, not too righteous, but he's still got to be kind of better, whatever that means. People want a guy to preach the truth, at least everyone else, but preach the truth, and, but not with too much authority or boldness, because, you know, they're just words. There's his words. He's just interpreting it. And he should never yell at me or tell me I need to repent, because that's just mean. And you don't tell people they're sinning, because they'll figure that out by the Holy Spirit. And I, I want him confident, but not arrogant. You know, he's got to be, there's a, there's a line there. I want him humble, but he's got to be bold. And funny, but not flippant, mind you. Not too many jokes. And engaging and entertaining, but also kind of meaty and wise. And, and he needs to be willing to show his heart. He's got to cry a little bit, but not too much, because that's kind of girly freaky. If he's weeping every time he says he loves Jesus or Jesus loves him, I just can't respect him. So he's got to be kind of emotional and yet emotionless at the same time. And, and I understand that there's boring sermons and there are boring preachers and there, there are people that you like to hear and people you don't like to hear. I totally understand that because I was the same way. But I'm convinced... And I, I say this to myself because I was the worst tipometer church evaluator guy there was. I believe that it has much more to do with the audience listening than it has to do with the preacher. And there are guys that I just really don't like. Boring as heck. I went to a church in Chelan because this is the first time I ever missed the service at Damascus Road. There's a little stone church there. I don't know if you've ever seen that church. It's really a cool-looking building. So I thought, you know, I'm going to church so me and my father-in-law, the rest of my family stayed because I'm such a great leader and brought him with me. But me and my father-in-law went, and we, we walked in, and we were probably one of ten people. And six of the people, they're ready to start the service now, and there are six microphones with big puffballs on them, like blue and red and yellow. I'm like, oh, no. And six people, so four of us are still sitting, six people get up to do worship. So the whole church is the worship team, you know, and they're just like singing, and I'm like, Okay, and so we are singing, and a guy gets up there, and he was this crotchety guy. I was like, I am not going to like you. you got a suit on for us ten people. I was so dismissive, and the guy hit me. Hit me with whatever he's brought. And I remember it clearly being going, I am such a jerk. Because I had presumed what was going to happen, because this guy looked boring. It was much more about problem than me that had anything to do with anything he said. Now, the truth is, we, any pastor, and I, I will speak for myself and the pastors who preach here, we don't preach because we necessarily want to. Jim didn't want to, okay? Jim tried to fight it for the longest time, and I never told him to. Eventually, like, I guess I will. And so he, he did it. But it's not like we want to, but as a church, we are convinced that we must. We have to. I don't necessarily think preaching should be boring, but it certainly shouldn't have the aim and goal of being entertaining and making everyone laugh as the primary you know, success meter. Well, they laugh. I hope they understood or heard something else truthful I said, but remember that joke? That was really funny. It would be tempting, I think, for me to jettison preaching, and it makes sense to me because there's so much pre- pressure to do more engaging things like show videos 
And you know, honestly, when we first started the church, we did stuff like that. And I, I think it was misguided at times. Still pretty funny, but it was misguided at times. And without question, we preach. Because preaching God's word, if it's a priority, demonstrates and proves and shows that the word of God is a priority. That it is central, that there is power in it. We preach it because if we don't, we believe we are not actually doing what Jesus has asked us to do. He did more than tell us to love thy neighbor. But even in that, the most loving thing that you can do for your neighbor and that I can do for you is preach. I believe that with everything that I am. Now, the reason I believe that is because God's word, not beginning in Acts, since Genesis, has always been God's instrument to create, to convict, to convert, to conform, to change his people. It is the way that God works. It is. Why? I don't know. But he has chosen to use his word to change and to save. Isaiah 55, 10. You may have heard this before. Isaiah was a prophet. Isaiah 55, 10 says this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, and it shall not return to me empty. No, it does what? It brings forth, it sprouts, it gives the seed and the sower bread, but it shall accomplish what that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God uses his word. He's always used his word. He accomplishes his purposes through his word. And God himself, this is kind of a strange way to look at it, but God himself is a preacher. Genesis chapter 1. He could have done so many other things. Ta-da! You know? Whatever. But he said, light! He spoke. And creation came. And it's the perfect sermon. From nothing comes beauty, comes all these things that we see in creation today. And he spoke into existence. He preached it. In Genesis chapter 3, when mankind basically said, well, we don't think we need you, we can find happiness somewhere else. He preached to them the gospel. In Genesis 3, where he says there's hope, there's going to be a son of woman coming, and that is Jesus, that we see the gospel preached for the first time. He preached a promise to faith to Abraham saying in Genesis 12, I will make you and bless you. You have faith, and that faith will become a blessing for all nations. And then he preached about the holiness of who he was, and he preached his law from the top of the mountain in Exodus 20. He's always been a preacher. He's always preached. And he often spoke directly, as in those instances where you hear God actually speaking, but he also spoke through preachers. And throughout the Old Testament, you see God working through these guys, these broken, messed up guys. And they were all messed up. None of them were righteous and holy. They all had their problems. But God said, I'm choosing you. I'm going to put my word in your mouth, and it's coming out. Priests and prophets and kings. Noah is called a preacher by Peter. One of the first preachers. You have Joseph 
preaching to his brothers. Brothers who threw him into a hole and then sent him into slavery. You have Joshua, I'm sorry, Moses preaching to the Israelites. God gives him his word and he goes, he preaches to Pharaoh, he preaches to the Israelites. Joshua carries it on and he preaches as they enter into the promised land. He says, choose today, choose today who you're going to follow. You have Ezra as they're rebuilding the Jerusalem walls, preaching. You have Elijah preaching to sinful kings. You have Isaiah, which I just read, preaching to sinful Israel. You have Jeremiah preaching to sinful Judah. You have Jonah going reluctantly and preaching to the world that are Israelites or Judah. And they repent. And then they become sinful. And Nahum, which is a book in the Bible, you may not be aware, he comes and preaches the same guys and he preaches condemnation. God has always been a preacher. He's always sent his word. And a preacher, like I said, is simply a tool. I'm a tool. Nice, huh? I'm just a mailman. And yet I am hated or loved because of what I say. It has nothing to do with me. I am simply a messenger. But I still get shot many times through emails, through conversations, whatever. Some of the disdain, I think, for sitting and listening to a guy preach is probably a result of our illiterate culture that tells us when I was teaching, I was told never show a movie clip longer than 12 minutes because they don't have the attention span to, to hang with you. And they come in, come listen to me for 45 minutes and, you know, on a short day, and you will, you know, be whatever. But the reality is it has much more to do with the people listening than the guy preaching. And some people are confused about what the preacher is actually doing. You're here to make me feel good. You should be doing it. No, that's not what a preacher is. In Greek, a preacher is a herald. He's a messenger who proclaims truth. He's not a Bible study leader. He is not a discussion facilitator. A preacher is someone who proclaims the truth. And in olden times, if you will, the same word, this messenger, was a person that was vested with public authority by the king to go and declare, typically, that something's been conquered and there's a new king in town. And it didn't like, hey, you better obey. It's more like, he's the king, and now you, your condition has been changed and it requires a response. The same thing happens with the gospel as we go out and the gospel is declared and it changes the condition of the people listening and requires a response to it. it. It's not instructions as here's what you need to do to have God love you. It has nothing to do with that. The gospel is that Jesus was sent to die, to make a way, dying for the, the sin that is you, that is all of us. He died in your place as your substitute, dying the death you deserved, paying the price for sin, and he is resurrected into new life. There's transformational power in that truth. And the reality is, it's not we come and say, well, here's the advice, the instructions to have a holy life. No, here is something that you are simply to believe, to receive it. That's it. Not to achieve, not to work for. It's free. Repent. And believe. And some people, I think, don't understand that we have, they kind of confuse what our mission is here. Like our mission is to do all these social things, and there's nothing wrong with those social things. They are good things. But you can do all the social things in the world, and if you never proclaim the gospel, you have failed to fulfill God's mission. It isn't a new thing, it's very old. 
our mission isn't like, let's revisit what our mission is, guys. We were writing a mission statement. I, remember, I don't even remember our first one. It was some wacky, corporate-sounding thing. But our mission statement now is very simple. You know, what's the mission of Damascus Road? It's the same mission that everyone who is a Christian has always been on. What? Sent into the world to proclaim the gospel. Really? That's it? What if they don't believe? That's not up to me. It's to proclaim the truth and to proclaim it boldly. Hebrews 1, if you ever read the book of Hebrews, you'll see in verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by who? The prophets or the preachers of the Old Testament. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. Jesus is the Word of God. John 1 tells us that. He is the Word incarnate. Everything that God said, Jesus. Jesus is, in many ways, the sermon of God, taken on flesh, perfect and powerful, and it is through Jesus is the perfect way to know what God is like. There's a reason why he told Philip. Philip's like, show us the Father. Please show us. He's like, are you serious? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen all there is to see about God. And the reality is, our sermons are supposed to be centered on Jesus. Because that is the purpose of all things. And typically, or you're seeing a lot of sermons that go into like Christian living. 15 different ways to be the better you. Or whatever they happen to be. And there are all these Christian living things. The reality is, you can't live as a Christian until you die with Jesus and are brought to new life, and then you live to glorify Him. Period. And that's a life of self-denial. It's not a life, well, now that I've been saved by Jesus, I'm going to go ahead and work really hard so He'll continue to love me. That's not what it is. The reality is, God saves you, and even the very works that you do are to glorify Him in response to what His work has done has nothing to do with your work. But people go, well, I understand that. I love Jesus. I prayed the prayer. But Jesus wasn't a preacher. It's time to live like Jesus now. And that's the second, heart, second part of our mission statement at our church, is to teach people to live like Jesus. And we go, that's right. We want to live communally. We want to be just really super nice to everyone and uh, bless them with our hands and our feet constantly. And... The reality is, you can't live like Jesus and not be a preacher. And there's a lot of things that people are trying to campaign for. Like I said, living communally, incarnating into the culture, and doing really everything the culture does in the spirit of Jesus, feeding the poor and and hungry and, and all these things. Basically, anything except preaching. And Yes, Jesus had one-on-one conversations with people, and yes, Jesus did heal people, and yes, he fed people, but every time he preached. And sometimes he preached in one-on-one conversations, and a lot of times he preached to crowds. And let me just go quickly through Mark. I could have chosen any gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John pretty much tell the same story from a different perspective. It would be like CNN and Fox and whatever other two, just same truth, different perspective. I'm going to go through Mark. Mark's written to Romans, has the most active verbs of all the other Gospels. It's like powerful and it's short. Mark chapter 1, after John, John the Baptist is arrested. He baptizes Jesus and says, 
follow this guy. There's the lamb that's slain for the world. John gets diminished. He says, I must decrease. He must increase. And Jesus starts his ministry. After he's arrested, John 1, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 1, says this. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus never told anyone to repent. Oh, yes, he did. And when you tell someone to repent, you know what that means? You can't tell someone who's not a sinner to repent. So basically means you dirty sinner, rebellious, broken individual, turn to God and believe. This is Jesus preaching this. He goes on, Mark chapter 1, verse 38. And he said to them, speaking to his disciples, let us go on to the next towns that I may meet together in homes and have communal discussions and talk about spiritual things. No, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, what would be their churches, the same word that James talks about in the gatherings, and casting out demons. Mark chapter 2, when we return to Capernaum, verse 1, after some days it was reported that he was at home, So he's relaxing with his disciples. People start gathering. It says, and many were gathered there, and there was no more room. They packed the house in this little home church they got going now. So he decides to light some candles, burn some incense, have communal dialogues about Jesus. No. That'd be about himself. No. He says, and he was preaching the word to them. So whether it be in a church whether it be in a home, he's constantly preaching. And his disciples want to get in on the business. He says, I'm going to empower you. Mark chapter 6 says, I'm going to send you out two by two because there's 12 of them. We've got six groups coming out. Think of the guy who got to go with Judas. It's fun. But they go out, right, into six different groups. And does he say, hey, go in. Make sure you feed everybody. Make sure they know you love them. And be kind and gracious to them. And feed them, clothe them. What? No. He says, go out, in verse 12 of Matthew 6, they went out and proclaimed the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed oil, many who were sick and healed them. Preaching. Repentance. And then Mark 16, 15, which is the last chapter of Mark, and tells us what to do. What are we supposed to do? And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim. Preach the gospel to all creation. Well, didn't things change after Jesus? I mean, that's Jesus. He's like the Son of God. You know, he was establishing things, and the disciples were going to afterwards gather differently. He was the preacher no one else was. What do we know happened in the New Testament church? And we know, if we read Scripture, that they regularly gathered for teaching. They regularly gathered for fellowship, for the Lord's Supper, for prayer, for giving. We know in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 because Paul's talking to a church that has a seriously messed up worship service that they met to worship publicly. And in 1 Timothy 4:13, Paul tells his pastor guy he's training Timothy of which we'll study later on this late spring that to preach and to read publicly scripture. And it was most likely read at the official gathering of the church and referenced by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, and in James, also in chapter 3, where they gathered. 
So they are called the church, the assembly of God, because they are gathered. And what are they gathered to do? A lot of people go, well, Acts 2. They gather together to have community and fellowship and, and break bread. And, but they also were devoted to the disciples, the apostles' teaching, the preaching. And you see it laid out, starting with Peter's sermon. What do they do? They preach Acts chapter 5 every day. In Greek, I think that means every day. I'm not sure. I'm not a Greek expert, but I'm thinking it means a lot of the time. Every day in the temple where there's a public gathering and from house to house. So this isn't like home church versus, you know, big institutionalized church. This is church. And whether it's in the temple or from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Acts chapter 6 when things are kind of getting busy and a lot of people are not getting served, the, the uh, uh, widows and, and the Jewish Christians are getting ignored in some of the service, so they raise up deacons and they tell the deacons in 6, the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God as this is our most important thing to do. Acts chapter 8, and I'll read a couple verses in that, in verse 4, 12, and 25, those who were scattered... Speaking of the disciples, this is because of the persecution by Paul. They get kicked out of Jerusalem. They get spread over the... What do they do? Go hide? No. They scattered, went about preaching the word. And verse 12, one of those guys, Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. In verse 25, now when they had testified, spoken the word of the Lord, they eventually returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. They were constantly preaching until we get to Acts chapter 9, where we get the story of Paul on the road to Damascus, who basically is a murderer of Christians. Jesus knocks him on his rear end, off his horse, and says, You're mine now. Go into town. Ananias, you go pray for murderer Paul. Are you serious? Yes, I am. He goes, prays for him. Barnabas comes and is an encouragement to him. And what does he do? Acts chapter 9 says that he preached immediately in Damascus. And then he goes on further and he says in verse 28, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Always preaching. So you have God as a preacher. You have his prophets as preachers. You have Jesus as a preacher and the very sermon of God. And then you have his disciples carrying on the same mission that John 17, Jesus says, I've sent you to do the same thing I was sent to do. And there's a familiar saying in Christian circles where Christians, they put them on those signs, you know, those like signs where you always make fun of because they say some silly things sometimes, where they say, preach the gospel and occasionally use words. And I've said this before, it's not that that's a bad thing. I think we need encouragement to basically uh, stop being so selfish and helping the needs of others. But salvation comes not through the hands and the feet. Romans 10 says salvation comes through the preaching of the word. And Paul even says, how will they believe? How will they confess unless a preacher goes to them? Now, the reason he says this, I believe, is that the word of God is powerful. The word of God, not the preacher, is powerful. I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel 
I know it's like, what in tarnation? Where's that? Okay, if you open your Bible halfway, you get to Psalms, and then turn to the right about three or four books. Ezekiel chapter 37. And there's an amazing image. Ezekiel is one of the prophets of God. Just to give you a little context, uh, Ezekiel was prophesizing or preaching, if you will, the Word of God. He'd been given the Word of God and would go and proclaim it. And he was doing it at a time when Jerusalem was falling. I'm going to preach uh, Habakkuk in uh, a couple weeks. Yes, that's actually a book of the Bible. And at that time, Babylon was the final fall of Jerusalem. And uh, so Habakkuk's a little bit before Ezekiel. Ezekiel's very artistic, if you will. A lot of images are created. God gives him a lot of visions. So this is one of the visions he gives him at a time when basically Israel and Judah are dead. Pretty much a hopeless situation. There's nothing left. They've all been or being exiled into Babylon. And, and you're like, where are God's people now? This is Ezekiel's wonderful time that he gets to proclaim in. So in verse 37, I'm sorry, chapter 37, verse 1, here's the vision that he gets. And this is why we proclaim and preach the word. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, Ezekiel speaking, and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were dry. So you got a big valley of dry bones. You may have heard this image before. So big, huge valley, just a bunch of dry skeletons laying there. And he said to me, Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, can these bones live on their own? Can they, can they go? And he answered, O oh Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophecy, preach over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel gets his vision, and what do you say? He says, go ahead and preach to him. Now, I'm not saying you guys are the bones, okay? But, you know... The reality is that God's Word brings life. It's not, there is a mystery involved here, but there's a power involved here that has very little to do with the creativity of which I speak, or any preacher speaks for that matter, who is the Lord's servant. So what does Ezekiel do? Verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, or as I preached, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophecy to the breath, prophecy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breathe, and breathe on these slain, for they were once alive now dead, that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came onto them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. The power to save an individual that Ephesians 2 says is dead, that power to bring life into someone is in the Word of God. The power to bring hope, 
the power to bring joy, the power to bring meaning, meaning into a situation that you very well may be living in right now. There's no meaning, no joy, no life. That is the power of God's Word. And He has demonstrated not only in creation, but in Ezekiel and in Jesus. The truth, the truth is that the power to bring joy isn't in anything the world offers. The power to bring contentment in the most terrible of situations. The power is in God's Word being proclaimed to you. The Word of God is not a dead book of just nice old ancient writings. It is a living book with the power to give life. And the preaching of God's Word, not programs, not some perfect Bible study, not a wanna or whatever it happens to be, the thing that unleashes the power of God's Word is the proclaiming of it. His Word builds us, and it grows us, and it protects us, and it guides us, and it gives us life. And yet it's the very thing that we go, "Ah, that's not so important to me. It's the only thing that's important. And that's why it's primary at central to the church. It gives life. And not only that, it's not just a power that's accessed once. We all have heard the phrase, well, I prayed the prayer. I heard the sermon, I prayed the prayer, and I believe. We constantly need God's Word. I constantly need God's Word. Because it's in my face, it challenges me, it transforms me, it gives me joy because I don't always have it, and it gives me guidance because I don't always know what to do. Jesus said in Ephesians 5 when he talked about the church, about loving the church like a husband, he says he washed her constantly with bubble bath. No, with the Word. He washed her with the Word. And yet it's the last thing that we typically access when we're dirty, especially. Jesus said that you don't live just by bread alone, but by the Word of God. And yet we get so hungry and fill our bellies with all kinds of things. The Word being the last thing we look for. We go, why, why am I discontent? Why am I unsatisfied? Hebrews 4.12 says this. It says that the Word of God has the power, my translation, to cut through all the BS that you pretend your life, or when you pretend your life is good. You don't fool. The Word of God cuts. It says Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. How? Piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And one of my favorite verses is Jeremiah 23, 29, that says the word, God says, my word is a fire and a hammer. Well, no wonder we avoid it. It's going to burn off all the stuff we don't want and crush it. Ow. But if we want healing, if we want joy, it's the thing that renews us. There are so many people that actually say, I believe this is the God's Word. And yet, this is the first thing they put aside, they ignore in the most desperate times. There are people right now that they have, they've wrapped their identity in so many different things and they believe that salvation and hope is in something else when all you need to do is hear the Word of God proclaimed. What does it mean to actually believe? Think about this. What does it mean to actually believe 
that this is the word of God. That these words are actually God's active living words spoken to us. Because it does you no good, no good at all. For to think that you have the word of God like that and not actually follow it. And finally, I think not only does it bring new life, not only renew us constantly, and I constantly need that because I get dirty in the world. 1 John 1, 9 says, Confess your sins and be faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you. That's written to believers. Why? Because we get dirty. And the Word of God comes in and cleanses us, sometimes from pride and breaks us down, and sometimes from despair and builds us up. But that's the Word of God that does that, nothing else. And the Word of God also defends the life that we have. In truth, there are a lot of false preachers. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 11 Verse 4 says it this way. Paul speaking says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's basically condemning them. But the truth is, there are many other Jesuses. There is one biblical Jesus, but there are a lot of false Jesus. A lot of false preachers and a lot of false gospels. And many of us have believed in them. There's only one gospel, there's only one foundation laid by Jesus Christ. And the reality is, many of us have found our identity in things other than that. Some of us have lost our jobs recently, and we've suddenly realized that that was so important to me, much more than I ever give credit. A relationship, an addiction, something that preaches happiness outside of Jesus. Something that allures you in the same way that Satan allured Adam and Eve, where it says you will be happy outside of God's Word and what God's Word says you should be content in. We have believed these false gospels, and many people believe that, well, the pastor's the one responsible for preaching. No, we're all preachers. And we're all to constantly proclaim the truth that Jesus died to put to death all of that sin. Everything that we have done, He died to kill off that you might be resurrected with Him into new life. And the first sermon that you should probably preach is to yourself. That your identity is there. Not in your job or your career or your marriage or anything else, but in glorifying God. Your mission is to proclaim the truth of God but first to proclaim it to yourself. You can't proclaim it to anyone else unless you actually believe it. And the reality is this. Think about what is, this, what is really, I mean really, like not kind of really, but really. Like if you hear nothing else, listen to this. What is the source of your identity? That one thing that you don't have, that you're scared to lose, that one thing that you fear so desperately that you might not obtain. Is it Jesus? Because if it's not, there's your Savior. Whatever that thing is, whether it be sex, family, money, position, job, whatever it is, if that's the thing you're so fearful of, that's the thing that your mind dwells on most, other than dwelling in the glory and the beauty that is Jesus and all the work that He has done, That's your Savior over there. 
we need to proclaim the truth. And the truth is that Jesus died for you and destroyed all of your sin and all of that brokenness and your very identity and buried it. Done. Gone. It's finished. And rose to give you brand new life so that you can say with boldness, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified. Really? Have you killed it all? Have you allowed everything to die except Jesus? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what we need to hear every day, 24-7. It never gets old. Why? I know. I need to hear it because I am broken, and I screw up, and I get prideful, and I despair, and I must always go back to the cross. And if a church ever gets about anything but the cross, it's no longer a church. It's lost its first love. It is dead or dying. And so we will be about proclaiming. We will be about preaching. We believe without question that many people have been deceived. Many of our friends have been deceived. Much of the world has been deceived. And that we don't need less preaching. We need more. Much more. And I'll close with this. Whether a church meets in a crystal cathedral or a home or a strip mall or a school or a shed out in the woods, I don't really care where it meets. If it preaches the gospel is what is first and foremost the first mark to test. And if it doesn't, it's not a church. First Corinthians, Paul wrote a letter to them because they were a church and they were very messed up. And he told them, all this stuff, you got messed up. Your worship's messed up. This ministry's screwed up. You guys got sexual addiction. All kinds of stuff going on in your church. And he says, but the most important thing is this. In 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Which is a great question for all of us. And he says, this is most important. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that's what we celebrate every single gathering we have. And before you take communion today, you let the Holy Spirit search your heart, not if you have sin, but if you have faith. In many ways, you're always going to have sin. But as you come up to this table, you proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the gospel together, which is, I'm dead and Jesus lives within me. It's all about Jesus' work and nothing about me. And as you lift that bread after dipping it in that cup, you are now cleansed with the blood of Jesus, clothed with Jesus, living clothed with Jesus, not in your own work, because honestly, your work stinks. And so does mine. Only proclaim it if you actually believe it. Let's pray. Father, we give you glory. We desire, Father, I desire to bask in all that is you. I pray that this church, that these individuals, these families will be centrally about proclaiming your truth, Lord. 
Let us not be distracted by all the personal preferences of stuff. But let us be brought together in our shared identity of the cross. And as we take communion together, Father, I pray you will knit our hearts together. And for those who need to be convicted, I pray, Holy Spirit, you will convict them. And those who need comfort, I pray, Holy Spirit, you will comfort them and bring us all to the foot of the cross where we lose ourselves and find new life in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. And let us never forget to remember that. In Jesus' name we pray.